join me in prayer. Father, as we come to you this morning, we thank you once again for your presence in this place. Acknowledging, Father, that you are here, not because of who we are, but because of who you are. Because of your love for us, for your desire to have a relationship with us. Father, we see in your word that, and you even say that we are your desire. Father, quite honestly, as I examine myself, I don't understand that. Because I'm not worthy of that. But Father, that's not what's important. The important thing is, you are holy, you are God, and you have chosen us as a people. Father, this morning I lift up another pastor in our community. Pastor Jose Amaya, the pastor of Iglesia Bautista Ridgecrest. Pray, Father, first of all, that this week has been a time of, of sweet study and a time of sweet worship as he's prepared to deliver your word this morning to that people this morning, that you have enriched his and his wife's relationship, that you continue to grow him and draw him close to yourself. Father, I pray for the worship over at Iglesia Bautista this morning, that they would lift you up and hold you high and glorify you in their words and in their song. Father, I also pray for one of our local government officials, Daniel Ray, who is the city attorney. Father, I pray that you would draw Daniel ever closer to you. Father, Kendra and I have known, it's hard to call him Daniel, we've known Danny since he was a little boy. We've watched him grow. We've watched him grow in his love for you. I pray, Father, that in his capacity as city attorney, that he would represent not just the legal side of things, that he would represent you, Christ, in his life and in his actions. Father, I also pray for the leadership of Cross Point this morning, for Pastor Ben and Christy as they continue in their sabbatical time. Father, I pray that you help him find the rest that he needs, not just physically, but spiritually. Father, as they're uh, out this morning, they're visiting C3, that that would be a, a time of refreshment for him and for the people of C3, be able to worship you this morning together. Father, I pray for Brad and Christy, and while Brad's still uh, overseas, I pray that you would bring him as we continue this morning that we would hear, not from a man, but from the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus himself said would lead us into the truth of your word. And it's in Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen. As we continue our worship this morning, let me invite you to turn to Romans 8. We'll be looking again at the passage that we looked at last week, a little bit further down into that passage in verses 31 through 39. And if you're here this morning and you don't have your Bible with you, look, in the, look under the seat in front of you. There should be a rack, unless you're on the front row. Um, but there should be a rack under there. There's Bibles dispersed throughout the fellowship. So um, pick up one of those Bibles. And if you do not own a Bible, let me invite you to put your name in the front of that Bible. Make that yours as our gift to you today so that you can walk out of here with, with God's Word in your hand. 
You're going to need your Bible this morning. We're going to be doing some, some flipping back and forth. Hopefully not as much as has been done in other times on Sunday mornings, but probably a little more than we did last week. Um, but we're going to be looking in Romans 8 to begin with. As you're turning there, I want to spend just a few minutes to recap some of last Sunday regarding Romans 8. Again, Paul has spent the first half of this letter to the church in Rome establishing some, some very real truths. First of all, that birthright doesn't win anybody anything. The Jews did not have special access to the throne room of God just because they were born into the Hebrew culture, into that, into that nationality. He also pointed out that the Gentiles couldn't do anything for themselves by following a set of laws or rules. That didn't get them anywhere either in terms of being closer to God or in right relationship with God. <clears throat> now, this is a church to the letter in Rome, and we know historically that Paul never visited the church. A lot of people will say and have said in the past that they thought that, that Paul actually established the church in Rome, but most scholars contend that there were most likely Jews that went from Rome to Jerusalem, heard on the day of Pentecost the gospel preached by the disciples, became believers, went back to Rome and established that church. Well, Paul is writing to this church to outline answers to a, a number of problems. But he basically points out that it's only through Jesus Christ that we have any hope at all. Even apart from Christ, there's not even one minuscule particle of entry that we could try to gain into the throne room of God. But it's only through Jesus that we have the, the hope of an eternal life in the presence of a white, hot, holy God. That even though we struggle from day to day, sometimes minute by minute in our lives, and, and I'll be honest with you, this morning was a struggle. Minute by minute, there were things going on in my head, and I was having to get focused again and get focused again and get focused again and get focused again. Um, and there was one point this morning that the thought came to my mind, you're not worthy. And my answer was, you're right, I'm not. <laughs> but Jesus is. And folks, from that point, it, it cleared a lot. And then before this morning, about 10 to 10, then Scott and I sat in his office and Scott prayed for me. And the clarity, clarity is there, I hope. Seems like it's there. But the thing is, that's the point. We struggle sometimes. Maybe it's a day that you go that there's really not a struggle. Maybe it's every five seconds there's a struggle going on. But that struggle is there, but it's because of Jesus Christ that we have access. It's not about us. In fact, that very struggle was lined out by Paul. We talked about last week. I want to visit again for just a moment here. And in Romans chapter 7, verse 24, Paul ends this discourse <clears throat> where he says that the things that he wants to do, he doesn't do. The things that he wants to practice, he doesn't do. He does the very evil that he doesn't want to do. And again, that's, that's where we all are. And we can line up with what he says in verse 24 when he says, I'm a miserable wretch. Those are, that's kind of a harsh phrase. That's who we are. Apart from Jesus, that's who we are. The very next verse, though, verse 25, he says, Thank God it is Jesus Christ who will rescue me from this body of death. And we can stand on that. And because of that, we live in, we revel in, we bathe in the privileges of the believer that we see lined out in chapter 8. <clears throat> Pardon me. 
And in that, we have a special access to the throne room of God. We also have an introduction to the throne room. And more than that, we have a manuduction. That manuduction is where Jesus stands up from the right-hand side of the throne of God, walks across, give me that water, <clears throat> walks across the throne room. Thanks, God. <clears throat> Pardon me. <clears throat> Pardon me. Takes us by the hand, walks us back across the throne room. We go up to the throne, and he introduces us to God. <clears throat> Sorry, I didn't know if I could do that or not. I won't ever do that again. I'll turn it off and do that. But that's the manuduction. We are escorted from the door of the throne room across the throne floor, throne room floor, and he takes us up to the throne and he gives us a special introduction to God. That's the manuduction. And because of the sacrificial work of Jesus Christ, we are adopted into the family. We can call him Abba, Father. It literally translates Daddy. Now, Romans 8, verses 31 through 39. And with all of that established, Paul then says, What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he also not with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is inter indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. <clears throat> Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now this morning as we continue with this, I want to examine the truth that the love of God is absolute, it's undeniable, it's perfect, it's righteous, and it provides the absolute protection against anyone, first of all, bringing a charge against us to God. And again, that's not based upon who I am or who you are, but upon the sacrifice made by Jesus. That protection against the charge being brought against anyone in Christ, we considered last week. In digging into, into verse 33 last Sunday, we saw that, the fact, that the, there is a fact that no one can bring a charge against us if we are walking, believing, faithing Christ followers. And because of that, we have, and God lavishes on us, the privilege of the believers. Those include being called, being foreknown, being predestined, being conformed to the image of His Son, being one of many brethren, being justified, being glorified, having our prayers delivered to the throne room by the Holy Spirit, 
having that special access, that special introduction to the throne room of God, and then having that manuduction where Jesus takes us by the hand and walks us across and takes us up to the throne and gives us a personal introduction with a white, hot, holy God. And we established in Scripture last week that when he does that, we stand. We stand before a holy God. Not thrown in front of him like a guilty criminal that we are in and of ourselves, but because of Christ, we stand wearing the righteousness of Christ. This morning, we're going to be answering, first of all, the question, who can separate us from the love of God? We're going to consider the very next verse in verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus, the one who died, and more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. John Piper provides a formula in his teachings in this passage of Romans. It has four elements. The first element, I just love the way those guys do that. It's just on cue. The first element is there is a just judge. There is a just judge. Turn to Psalm 7. As you're turning to Psalm 7, the the fact that there is a just judge is very clear. God is the just judge of all the universe. He is the one who created all things. He is that just judge of all creation. And all creation falls on their faces. We fall on our faces before him, the just judge. In Psalm 7, verses 11 through 13, the psalmist says, God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. If a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and made it ready. He has also prepared for himself deadly weapons. He makes his arrows fiery shafts. God is a just judge. Of that there is no doubt. Now the second element of this formula is this. There are guilty sinners. We add that to the list of the just judge element. And that looks pretty serious. A just judge plus guilty sinners? Where do you think that takes us? Well, we know from Scripture that we are all sinners. Romans 3.23. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that literally means all have sinned. Not just some, all. Not just everyone minus one. All have sinned. So we fall into that second category under a just judge. Every one of us. We know we have a just judge in God. We know that we are are guilty sinners. Just those two elements by themselves don't bode too well for us, do it? Doesn't. If that's where it stopped, we would all be in serious, serious trouble. Because God is a holy God, He's a righteous creator, and He's a just judge, God simply cannot let crimes go unpunished. He can't excuse crime, 
He cannot excuse sin. We see in our society where, where judges may render a, a, a verdict where they may be guilty, but he maybe probates or whatever the words are. I didn't look all that up, but you know, he, 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 he may let them off. He may excuse what the maximum penalty is. He may give them a lesser sentence or whatever the crime is. But when a guilty sinner stands before just God, a just judge, there is no excusing of the sin. There must be a reckoning for that sin. We, we see through the, the first eight chapters of Romans 8, there's nothing we can do to create that reckoning, to try to pad our, our, our place with a just judge. The reckoning is Jesus Christ. Jesus paid the price, period. So the third element in this, here it is, the death of Jesus. We add to this equation the death of Jesus Christ. The third element of this formula is the sacrifice that Jesus chose to make in order to glorify the Father and to provide that way of reconciliation between a holy God and an unholy people. Because if it was just just judge and guilty sinner, there would be nothing. But we add to that the death of Jesus. So studying through this, this song came to mind, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a guilty stain. He washed it white as snow. That's our hope. Because Jesus took our sin on himself, he bore the weight and the penalty of our sin on the cross. He wore our guilt on the cross. Because he wore our guilt on the cross, we can now wear the righteousness that he provides to us. When we're called, when we answer that call by God, and we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, and we call him Lord, and we walk with him, he puts that cloak of righteousness on, the, on us, and we wear that. The reckoning was Jesus Christ. And we see the just judge, the guilty sinner, and the death of Jesus. And because of that, we can then go back to the first verse of this chapter in chapter 8. And again, we have, to, we have to recognize that Romans 8, 1 is undeniably connected to the passage before that. Because Romans 8, 1 starts with, therefore. Okay, that's not a beginning statement, that's a conclusion statement. Going back, as, as, as I mentioned earlier, in Romans 7, Paul talks about the struggle that he goes through on a daily basis, same struggle that we go through. He refers to himself as a miserable wretch, and he says, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thank God it is Jesus Christ who does. So Jesus is our rescue, and we add Jesus to the formula, just judge, guilty sinner, death of Jesus, and because of that, we now live in the fourth element of this formula, and that is, there is no condemnation. And we see that in Romans 8, 1, which says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
just judge plus guilty sinner plus the death of Jesus equals, line is drawn, absolute, the result of that is no condemnation. Continue on in Romans 8, 34. We are reminded again that Jesus was not only the one who was crucified, but he was raised from the dead. If you look in Romans 8, 34, it says, who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? It is an absolutely essential fact that we know that Jesus was crucified. We must recognize that. We have to focus on that. We have to acknowledge that, that he was crucified. That is vital. It is an essential. But then Paul points out, more than that, and that word more is, it's an absolute emphatic. More than that. He was raised from the dead. Dear people, if he were still in the tomb, we would be no better off than any other religious group in the world. We'd we'd be talking about, you know, he said this and he did this and, you know, he had these sayings and they're pretty neat. We can try to live by those. But we worship a risen Lord. He's no longer in the tomb. So more than being crucified, he was raised from the dead. How is this accomplished? Look at Romans 8, 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This is one of those perichoresis, that holy dance between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit we really don't understand. The Holy Spirit raised Jesus. God the Father raised Jesus. Jesus raised Jesus. It was all the same, okay? But it was the Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead. And the very fact that Jesus was raised from the dead indicated that God was satisfied with the sacrifice that Jesus had paid. When Jesus uttered the words, it is finished. He wasn't talking about his life. He wasn't talking about just the crucifixion. When he said, it is finished, he was saying, the price has been paid. It's perfect. It's done. Nothing else is owed. The fact that Jesus was resurrected from the grave was proof that the sacrifice was perfect. And because of that, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And because he was raised from the dead, Jesus walked on the earth for 40 days, appearing to over 500 believers. We don't see any evidence in Scripture that he appeared to anyone that wasn't already called and answered that call and was walking as a a faithing, believing follower of Christ. Jesus ascended then 
and return to his rightful place at the right-hand side of the throne of God. Look in, look in Acts 1. Acts 1 verse 9. Jesus had been talking to his disciples one last time, some personal words. In verse 9 it says, when he, that is Jesus, when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And we know through scripture that Jesus now sits at the right hand side of the throne of God and that punctuates the fact that there is no condemnation the effects of his death, burial, and resurrection has continued since that time that Jesus died, was buried, was resurrected, and ascended and went back to heaven. And it will continue today and into the future until we are all united with Christ Jesus in that new heaven and that new earth that God promises. And we will be there glorifying the name of the Father for all eternity. And now because we have that special access to the throne room and because there is no accuser and because there is no condemnation, we can move to the next astounding truth in Christ Jesus. Verse 35 of Romans 8. There's another question that Paul poses, a question that needs to be answered and that he does answer. And the question is this, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Now, this question comes from the previous statements made in actually all of Romans up to this point, but particularly in verses 31 through 34. Because God is for us, because he did not spare his own son, who can bring a charge against God's elect? No one. It is God who justifies who is to condemn? No one. Christ Jesus is the one who died and who was raised and who is at the right hand of the throne of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Therefore, there is no one that can separate us from the love of Christ. Again, the question is a rhetorical question. The answer has already been given because of all that God has done up to this, up to this point, no one can separate us from the love of Christ. And it is because of his obedience to the Father and because of his and the Father's love for us that Jesus died on the cross in order to glorify the Father to provide the forgiveness that we needed in order to have a reconciled relationship with the Father. That was our plan from the beginning. We looked in Romans 5, 8 last week, and I'm going to quote, I'm going to read that. But God shows his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Well, verse 35 has several elements to consider this morning. First of all, it begins with the word, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And again, because of all that's been established in the writings, the answer is no one. So then Paul takes it from that to very personal experiences to see if there's anything that can separate us from the love of Christ. 
And he starts off. He says, shall tribulation We've been given the promise by Jesus in his own words that we will go through tribulation because of his name. Turn to John 16. John 16, verse 33. John 16, 33 says, Jesus said in his own words, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I've overcome the world. Revelation 1.9, turn there. Jesus promised tribulation. We see it again in Revelation 1.9. Where John says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Why was John boiled in oil because he took a stand for Jesus Christ. He refused to refute the name. When he survived that, then he was sent to the island of Patmos. Why? Because he refused to renounce the name of Jesus Christ. It was because of the name of Jesus that he was in this tribulation. And then just a page over in Revelation 2.10. God's word says, Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Now, we know from God's word that God is a perfect God, and if he gives a gift, he's not going to remove it. We have that gift of eternal life with God through Christ Jesus. If tribulation would separate us from the love of Christ, why would God tell us you're going to go through tribulation? Obviously, tribulation will not separate us from the love of Christ. Now, Jesus was speaking about tribulation when we stand in his name. He's not talking about the consequences of personal sin. When I sin, there are consequences. And it may feel like tribulation because there's bad things that are going on in my life, but that's different than what God is talking about here. And, and that, dear people, is a whole different sermon we're not going to get in today. But just know this. If, if there is sin in your life and you're going through some bad things, that may not be the tribulation that, that, Christ, that God is talking about here. Just know that. There's a difference there. This is tribulation based upon your stand that Jesus Christ is Lord and refusing to renounce his name. God says, we will go through that. The next thing that he asked, will persecution separate you from the love of Christ? Turn to Matthew 5.11. See, we've also been given the promise by Jesus that we will be persecuted for his name's sake. Not just go through tribulation, we will be persecuted. 
When we take a stand in the word of God and on the gospel of Jesus Christ, and yet we will not be separated from the love of Christ. In fact, we will be drawn into and covered by his love. Matthew 5.11 says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Just a few verses over, Matthew 5.44. He said, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now flip over to John 15, 20. John 15, 20 says, Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted you, they will also, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Now, what does this persecution look like in today, real life time, Greenville, Texas, 2013? And we are to bless those who persecute us. And that's really the question. What does that look like? Does that mean that when you're going through persecution, you smile sweetly and use your best syrupy voices? Oh, God bless you. Uh -uh. (laughs) Uh-uh. That's not what that's talking about. Turn to Acts 7. We see the picture of what this blessing in the face of persecution looks like. Acts chapter 7, verses 58 through 60. See what happens in the life of Stephen, one of the first deacons called by God. In Acts 7, 58, it says, Then they cast him out of the city, and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Falling to his knees, he cried out with a a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. He died. No place in there did he look at them and say, God bless you. Jesus loves you. He didn't say that. He did say, in essence, that Jesus loved them. Because the blessing that Stephen had spoken was the testimony that he'd given before they cast him out of the city. When he taught them who Jesus was, that was the blessing. And when he didn't attack them, but he had peace in Christ knowing what he was going through. And then the blessing continued through a young man named Saul who witnessed this execution. And the men that were in charge of the execution laid their cloaks at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul witnessed that. He heard Stephen's words. Sometime after that, That young man named Saul became the persecutor of the Christian church. And on the road to Damascus, he had a very personal contact with Jesus Christ. And he was blessed. The words that he heard from Stephen. The blessing continued with that connection with Jesus Christ. And that blessing continued 
because he had already been called, he didn't know it until that time, to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And the blessing continues as we read his words in a letter to a church in Rome. That's what this looks like. Persecution will not separate us from the love of Christ. Now, the answer to all the other elements presented in this passage are just the same. We don't need to go through each one of those this morning. Uh, Scott recognized that I had enough notes this morning. I don't need to go any further than that. But think about this. It says famine will not separate us from the love of Christ. Nakedness will not separate us from the love of Christ. Danger will not separate us from the love of Christ. The sword will not separate us from the love of Christ. In fact, all of these draw us closer to the love of Christ. And the sword absolutely ushers us into the presence of Christ immediately. So it's not going to separate us. We get to experience the fullest measure of the love of Christ when we're joined with him for all eternity. Romans 8.36, continuing there. In this verse, Paul quotes a passage from Psalm 44. So turn to Psalm 44. I want you to see this. Because in Romans 8, Paul says, as, is it, as it is written, and then he quotes Psalm 44, verse 22. Psalm 44, 22 says, Yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now, this is a verse from God speaking prophetically through the psalmist of the coming persecution of those who profess a belief and of being a bondservant to Jesus Christ. During the persecution of the Christians by the hands of the Roman government, Christians were often killed in an all-day murder fest. And the, the government, the, the government officials had no more regard for the Christians being murdered and the people who were there in their, in their bloodlust wanting to see all of this, they didn't regard the Christians any, any differently than sheep. Well, see, in that day and time, sheep were really not regarded as anything to be loved or cherished. It was food source. When someone was hungry, they killed a sheep and they ate it. Okay. May have provided some clothing with the wool. Other than that, there really wasn't anything else about the sheep that they, that they treasured. And under the Roman government, under Nero initially, Roman citizens would watch for hours in the so-called games and watch Christians being torn to shreds by animals. All kinds of just horrible persecutions they went through to feed their bloodlust. I went and read through some, a lot, of Fox's Book of Martyrs. It's not an easy read. Um, and in the first persecution of the Christian church that began in AD in 67 AD under Nero, again in his madness, Nero ordered Rome to be burned. And the soldiers did that with vigor. There wasn't much left. And when the Roman officials began to question Nero to exonerate himself, he blamed the Christians. 
And that's where it began. Christians would be sewn into freshly skinned, or the skins of freshly killed animals. They would be sewn in that, thrown out in the arena, and then they would let dogs loose that had not eaten for maybe two weeks. And the dogs would shred and tear that skin apart and the Christian that was on the inside. Sometimes they would sew them up tight in this fresh, wet skin, laid out in the sun in the arena, and the skin would dry and begin to shrink, and the Christian inside would be crushed. Slow, agonizing death. Nero was also known as putting Christians in a shirt that was coated with real heavy wax, impaled on a stake in his garden, and they would light them on fire, alive. And that would be the garden torch for their parties. And reading through Fox's Book of Martyrs, this is only one of ten persecutions that he lays out. The second persecution began only a few years later under Domitian, who was even more cruel than Nero was. When there was a catastrophic event like a volcano or an earthquake, you know, a flood, they would blame Christians. And Christians would then be brought into the court And if they did not renounce their faith, then they would be executed in horrible ways. Timothy, for example, that we see Paul writing to, who was a pastor, Timothy was beaten so severely with clubs that he died two two days after the beatings. The third persecution spoken of by Fox began in the reign of Trajan in 108 A.D., where thousands of Christians per day, let that number sink in, thousands of Christians per day were executed in the arena in Rome. As I began to think about that, I thought, how many hours would it take and how many would have to be executed each hour How many would have to be executed each minute? I mean, and and then it dawned on me, well, if they're killing thousands per day, look how the word of God had spread and how the church had grown in that short period of time. If there were enough Christians that they could execute thousands a day, God's work was just an amazing thing going on. And that's kind of where I landed in that rather than focusing on the blood. It's like what, what God had done, amazing. One of the most notable in that thousands was a very familiar name in Bible circles, and that's the name Ignatius. And he was thrown to the beasts in the arena and was torn to pieces. The rest of those are just as bad. Tens of thousands of Christians executed in this time of persecution. And this will not separate us from the love of Christ. It just will not. Romans 8, 37. And an answer to that, will anything separate us? In, in Romans 8, 37, God says through Paul, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And again, the word to focus on there is the word more. It's that emphatic 
We are more than conquerors. Do we conquer these things? No, because if I conquered something, I'd be the one standing up taking the accolades. I would. I mean, I just know me, and that's what I would do. I think most of us here would at some point and in some way. No, it is Jesus who conquered. And because we are more than conquerors, that through the tribulation process, we are already more than conquerors. Because Jesus is the one that won the victory. And in fact, we are more than conquerors because we are the recipients of that grace, that mercy, that love, that righteousness that we wear that comes to us through Christ. It is the Lord who conquered. He is glorified. And we are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus because of his love. Paul summarizes this truth in the last two verses in this passage this morning. Romans 8, verses 38 through 39. Here Paul says, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. These last two verses of this passage points out that nothing can and nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. There is no separation. So to go back to the first question, who can separate us from the love of Christ? No one. What can separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing. Not based upon who I am or who we are as an individual people, but based upon the perfect sacrifice made by Jesus Christ. One of, one of the men that have, that's walked beside me for a number of years now, after having read through my sermon this last week, and we were talking about this, he made the comment that one of the things that really struck him as he was reading and praying that all too often and in too many situations in the church, and that includes us where we are this morning, the people of God seem to be suffering from a significant identity crisis. A significant identity crisis. Not knowing who they really are in Christ Jesus. And dear people, today, please, please, if you are in that, if you're struggling with who you are, if you're not sure who you are in Christ Jesus, then go back and revisit the privileges of the believer. And if you know that you are consistently walking, believing, and faithing in Jesus Christ, apply the privileges of the believer to your life today and know that's who you are. You're called. You're predestined. You're foreknown. The Holy Spirit intercedes for you with groanings too deep for words. You have that special introduction into the throne room. You have special access. You have that manuduction where Jesus escorts you across the throne room floor to the throne, and you stand before a holy God based upon the righteousness of Jesus Christ. 
Revisit the truths of what Jesus has accomplished. He has conquered. We as a people are more than conquerors. We're recipients. Only then can we as a people really walk in the light in our lives. Regardless of what you're experiencing. If you're having problems with your job. If you're having problems paying bills. If you have problems in your marriage. If you have problems with your children. If you have a financial crisis. If your air conditioning goes out on a Sunday afternoon in, in July. Doesn't matter what we're going through. It doesn't matter how much you pray, how much time you spend in the scripture. It's based upon Jesus. It's not what we do. It's recognizing that our identity is based in Christ Jesus. You may be struggling with temptations or maybe a temptation that just doesn't seem to ever go away. It may be something that it doesn't matter how much you pray. It doesn't matter how much you spend in, how much time you spend in Scripture. It doesn't matter how many Scriptures you memorize. You pour that in, and that temptation just continues to come back and plague you day by day, sometimes minute by minute. And you just can't get free of that. Keep this in mind. You have an identity in Christ Jesus. It's an absolute identity. And nothing can separate you from the love of God. As we prepare to observe this meal, this supper, this morning, Aaron and Stephanie, y'all come on up. And let's pray. Father, we bow before you and again thank you for thanking you for the truth of your word. Thanking you that we do have an identity in Christ and that nothing and no one, no event, no temptation can separate us from the love of Christ because Jesus has already secured that. He has conquered and we are more than conquerors. We are recipients. Father, help us bathe in that truth this morning. Find comfort in that truth. Find conviction in that truth. Find a yearning to enjoy a Sabbath rest in Jesus in that truth that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Father, I pray that you will help us enjoy this meal this morning as a people. In Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen.